Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 171. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? Not too bad. Yourself? I'm doing well. Um, so, we last week we teased kind of a, a fun, braggadocious Leafs podcast um, coming up. And the Leafs rewarded us by losing two games. <laughs> and their goaltending looked awful as a result, or in, in the results. And that's not particularly fun or braggadocious to talk about. So we are just going to quickly slide over that and talk about something else instead, which is more fun to talk about from a Leafs fan perspective. What is that, Fuleman? That thing is whether Austin Matthews is the most valuable player in the NHL this year. Yep. So the Hart Trophy mm -hmm. uh, breakdown. We actually thought of doing this last weekend. I swear we were teasing this on purpose at the end of last episode. And conveniently enough for us... The Hart Trophy drove a bunch of discussion this week, mm -hmm. um, stimulated by Don Lachishan at The Athletic, writing his usual update as to who he considered the true contenders. Um, I'll say this, we have four names here of people we think are seriously in the running for the award. This more or less aligns with what Dom thinks in terms of who's a real contender. It does not align with the thoughts of Mr. Alan Walsh, player agent to numerous NHLers, including Jonathan Huberdeau, and Walsh and Dom had a bit of a kick-up on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, in, in which it was mostly Walsh acting like a douchebag. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like I think both sides were legitimate here. I think Walsh is going 300% for his client, as is his habit. And I think Dom was pointing out, hey, Huberdeau doesn't look that great by anything but raw production. Mm-hmm. However, we decided we would look at this, and this is a fun conversation for us, because as mentioned, Austin Matthews is a very real contender for the Hart Trophy, for yeah, most valuable player. Um, it's been a long time since the Leafs had anyone win the Hart Trophy. I believe it was Teeter Kennedy in 1953. Um, at no point in my life, or really in the decades preceding it, uh, have the Leafs had a real claim to having the most valuable player in the NHL. Like, right. it's not like they got robbed at some point. They really were never that close. Right. I mean, the Leafs, for such a historic team, have had a real dearth of elite talent, especially in recent years. Like, mm -hmm. And by recent, I mean, you know, who who is the Leaf who has, in the past 30 years, been closest to, like, the, the absolute top of the league? Maybe early 90s Gilmore... Um, maybe Sundin had a couple seasons in there where he was close, but Sundin was more of a consistency guy than a than a peak guy, mm -hmm. right? They've, they've, I think, essentially never had anyone in the, their recent past who is as close to the top of the league as Austin Matthews is. Yes. So already he's breaking into new territory for Toronto Maple Leafs fans. Question is, is he the best? And of course, a lot of people would react pretty strongly two arguments that he's the best player because the best player is consensus Connor McDavid. We're mm -hmm. going to talk about that, um, how valid that is. But those two aren't the only serious contenders. So yeah. We think there are four. And we're going to start with Johnny Gaudreau, who's a winner mm -hmm. for the Calgary Flames. Uh, Johnny Gaudreau is sort of the king of the zippy little winger archetype. You know, we've talked about that in drafting in recent years. The little guy who fills the fucking net, as the tweet goes. Um... Smaller, Gaudreau is listed at 5'9", very agile, 
in Gaudreau's case, he's a very well-rounded offensive threat because he can shoot and finish. Um, he's extremely quick. He's very creative. He has terrific offensive impacts, and he's having a major comeback here after a bit of a lull in Calgary in general. I think that applies to really the whole team who were kind mm-hmm. of kicking it under Daryl Sutter. Um, Gaudreau absolutely belongs in this conversation, first of all, in terms of production. He's fourth in the NHL in points. He has 71 at time of writing. Uh, Dreisaitl and McDavid are tied for the lead with 79. But in Gaudreau's case, he is leading a better team. And so being part of a really good team sometimes helps you with this because you have to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Gaudreau's case, I think he's the consensus offensive leader. I will say also, um, knowing what goes into this award in terms of the chatter, raw production is one thing which he's got, and he does have a plus 41 in terms of yes. plus minus, which, as much as we may not think too much of the stat, it still gets taken into account. Right, and that is a a, a big chunk of Goodrow's value this year comes from not just his point production, but his overall 5v5 play. Um He's sporting pretty ludicrous uh, on-ice results, around a 60% Corsi and expected goals, and then an even more ludicrous 74% goals for percentage. Mm-hmm. And that's driven both by uh, hot shooting, which I believe he does have some control over, and really good goaltending when he's on the ice, which I believe he has less control over. Mm-hmm. But regardless, like Calgary's top line has driven a lot of their success this season. And Goodrow is arguably the best player. He is the best player on that top line, though the other uh, players are very good. Elias Lindholm and and, um, Matthew Kachuk. Right. I do think that his case suffers a little bit from that question because I don't know that it's definite. He's the best player on the line. He's the most offensively capable. Mm -hmm. And I think he probably has the strongest case. But coming into this year... If you said which of these three people is the most valuable, I think a lot of stats people would have said Matthew Kachuk because he's always driven terrific results. He has that hard-to-evaluate agitator thing, which I think we'll talk more about in terms of drawing penalties. Um, And he's always been very good defensively, whereas Gaudreau has never been considered that great defensively. It can be hard to do when you're his size, for one thing. And so whatever positive impacts he has on that end are kind of a bonus. But for the most valuable player in the NHL, the bar is quite high. You are supposedly at the very top. Goudreau, I think, definitely belongs in this conversation because everything has gone well for them, and he's, he's a real leader for the Flames. I don't think that he's necessarily the best player. It's a good ensemble act there. It's working really well. And maybe this is bias against wingers as much as anything. The other three names on our list are not wingers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, I guess to some extent, a similar argument could be made about uh, Miko Rantanen, mm-hmm. right? Because, again, has a lot of the same positive traits, very strong production this year, but they're, it's kind of filled with really good players uh, on, that, on that team and on his line. It's hard to, to you know, hard to uh, ascertain exactly how much credit any individual person should get. And that's the case with Goudreau, Kachuk, and Lindholm, who have all been been great this, yeah. uh, this season. Exactly. Um, Rantanen is going to suffer because of raw production. He's mm-hmm. just a little bit back. And 
again, for this award, you really have to be pretty close to the top to seriously contend for it, even if the difference is only 5, 10 points, as it is at present. <laughs> um, I will say, in, in justice to Rantanen, Nathan McKinnon has missed some time. There's always a bit of a, are you even the best player on your team question with guys like um, Gaudreau, who I think has a case, Jonathan Huberdeau, who we mentioned, I don't think is the best player on his team. I would have that as Alexander Barkov. Or Rantanen, I think the consensus would have him behind Nathan McKinnon, who has missed some time this year. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff does kind of sting you. Now, Leon Dreisaitl ran away with the Art Ross a couple years back and won the Hart Trophy as a consequence. But in a more crowded field, I think that that holds Gaudreau back. Um, if you believe penalty differential matters a lot um, that's going to bear a lot on this conversation Gaudreau draws a lot of penalties McDavid draws a ton of penalties Matthews doesn't and I think there's some discussion of if you draw a lot of penalties individually does that actually benefit your team a ton or does the instinct that NHL referees have which is to even up calls for the most part kind of attenuate the benefits there like if you know you're good at drawing penalties yourself but the refs are going to say at the end okay well we better give one to the other team because we called one this way and your team ends up kind of near neutral as a consequence then drawing penalties is more just redistributing what you would have gotten anyway which is about as many power plays as penalties Mm -hmm. um it's not quite that perfect but i think there's a real question as to how you measure that yeah, because there are teams that generate a lot of, that generate quite a few more power plays and penalty kills, or vice versa. Like Carolina's, Carolina is a heavily pe- penalized team. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh is not. Pittsburgh is the least penalized team, while still drawing a few for quite a few per game, or around a league average amount per game. Yeah, and just to jump ahead a bit, Edmonton still has more penalty kill time than power play time this year, um, despite McDavid, which may suggest something. Again, that may just suggest something about the team he's on too, but. If you're throwing that into the mix, and a lot of models do account for penalties drawn and taken as part of the value, um, it, it's something that you have to consider. I don't give Gaudreau a ton of credit for that, and I, well, I think his defensive results are fine. I think they're less to do with him based on track record. And so as a result, I don't have him in the top three. Mm-hmm. Um, still, though, I get his case. And Huberdo, just to mention it in passing... Um, the defense I don't think is there. And again, if I'm Alan Walsh, I'm going to pound the table and shout 76 points, which is right behind Dracidal and McDavid, and plus 23. Mm -hmm. But if you don't care about plus minus, there's a lot of evidence that Huberto isn't really driving defense. Again, don't think he's the most valuable player on the Panthers. And I'm a little less impressed by the raw production. I would also note that in terms of primary assist rate, which is really what I think should count for this, um, Goudreau is ahead of pretty much everybody yeah yeah i mean this is an important thing to note is that like points inherently assume that goals primary assists, and secondary assists are all worth the same and on average like i think we would both agree that that's not actually the case yeah you'd rather have austin matthews 70 points versus another guy who's getting 70 points but with a ton of secondary assists because you know matthews has more responsibility for that outcome so that sort of echoes through this whole conversation and it opens the door for Matthews who does not have a ton of assists. Mm-hmm. He has more goals than assists almost every year. Yes. Um, Igor Shesterkin. 
Yeah, so this is where we get into, I guess, an interesting um, discussion. Right. What do you do with goalies? Because you could give it to a goalie every single year. Right. Um, basically, Shesterkin has been superlative this year and is definitely the biggest reason why the Rangers are comfortably in a playoff spot. Yeah. With an ordinary goalie, this team is scuffling. Like, they might still be ahead of Columbus and hanging on to that eighth seed, but they are a lot less comfortable than they are now, which is seeded in the Metropolitan Division. Um, the thing about goaltenders is they matter so much that, as I said, you could give it to a goalie every single year. Yeah. And there's a real reluctance to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, not never. It does happen. Carey Price won the heart in 2014-15 when he was consensus best goalie in the world. But it's worth noting even that year, the offensive leaders were not all that impressive. Like Jamie Benn won the Art Ross that year with 87 points in 82 games. And Ovi ran away with the Rocket, but Ovi was in a bit of a... Uh, he was considered less impressive by that point, I think, because of playoff failures, <laughs> which I think uh, degraded his reputation on ballots a little bit. So you really need an opening to win as a goalie just because... There's a sense that it's kind of all fluky with goaltenders. If Shesterkin could do this consistently every year, he is more valuable than Connor McDavid. There's just a doubt that he can do that because goalies are so all over the place, and it's hard to even be consistently good. Um, and I know you may be thinking as a Leafs fan of the past two months. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, that said, we've established, look, there are circumstances where goalies win it. Um, Carey Price, and then further back, Jose Theodore, in mm -hmm. kind of a wild season. But as you said, it's usually in situations where the offensive talent is not particularly outstanding. There is a real preference to give this award to a skater and usually a forward, um, as opposed to a goaltender who, you know, as you said, have have their own award and... If if you're going strictly by the letter of the law of which player is most valuable to their team, well, it's inevitably the best goalie every single year, mm -hmm. right? But it feels somewhat silly to do to just essentially double up on the Vesna. Yeah, and there's a real reluctance to do that, and I think it will keep Shesterkin from winning this award because there are enough other contenders. Mm -hmm. Again, he has a real case. In fact, if you say, I think the goalie tax is stupid, it should be letter of the law, um, the most valuable player of any kind, then you can quite reasonably say Shesterkin is the most deserving candidate. Mm -hmm. um, if you will bear with me for one second, there is a little legal parallel here. You know, we have a common law system where the law says what it says and then it's interpreted by judges who had details, interpretations, all that sort of thing. And that's sort of what's happened with the heart as well as with uh, the Selkie, for example. Um, all of these awards have been given interpretations that go beyond just the letter of what their rules say. And so I think it's legitimate to say, hey, we don't give this to goalies. And that is part of the award because that's what we've always done. So, yeah, you have to calculate what the goalie tax is and whether Shesterkin is still number one after and I think this is a year with enough strong offensive performances that that holds him out. I did want to mention something. Uh, Henrik Lundqvist in his prime looked like the best goalie in the world, bar none, 
for long mm-hmm. stretches. Um, and the Rangers arena was deemed, uh, in a review by Michael McCurdy, if I recall correctly, to be sort of overcounting the danger against. It still mm-hmm. left Lungfist as really, really good, like a Hall of Fame goalie, but it meant that he wasn't quite as far out in front of the pack as he might have been. So I took a quick look. Shesterkin is still the second best goalie by goal saved above average on the road. <laughs> he's a little less impressive than at home, but he's been very good everywhere he's gone. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to recommend him here. The Rangers yeah. always have such good goalies, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wonder what's going to happen with them like, if they eventually ever get like a goalie who isn't essentially a Hall of Fame talent. Yeah, it, because I don't believe that team is actually all that good. No. Yeah. That's, that's also partly why the heart is here, because, like, you, you know, I mean, he's the best goalie regardless, but it really stands out when you look at the team and you're like, this is one power play u- unit's worth of talent. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot else there that is not that great. Like, this team gets outchanced a lot, so. Um, so that said, we kind of get quickly to the main event here, which is Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews. Yes. Yeah. Um... Connor McDavid has two big things going for him. He is considered the best player in the world mm-hmm. for good reasons. And either he or Dreisaitl, who is his partner, but a lesser partner, I think all would agree, is going to win the Art Ross. And so winning the scoring trophy still gets you a long way with this. And being the best player in the world, I think a lot of people in the end get down to it and they say, okay, but really who is the best player and the answer to that is still considered to be McDavid. Yeah, and I, I would I would agree with that. And I mean, McDavid has been quite unfortunate this year. Um, his on-ice shooting percentage is at a career low, mm-hmm. and that can happen. But it it you know, Connor McDavid has a very long and extensive track record of being able to convert his chances and create chances that teammates can convert as well. Yeah, right. And that feels like it's it's fair to like ding him for in the sense of like awards voting, but it's also why I think like going forward we would expect him to convert you know at some weighted average of his this year's uh, XGO performance and his career out XGO performance. Yeah, and you can look at this and say, look, this award is about this year as it is supposed to be, and we should give it to the best player. I do think that voters often take into account. Will I feel silly about this vote in a few years? And I think the Norris, for example, you know, the best way to be considered a Norris caliber guy is to have been considered really good for several years beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't necessarily give it to the best player, the best defenseman in the NHL that year. Um, infamously with the Doughty Carlson thing, which is still argued. Um, a big problem for McDavid's candidacy is the Oilers themselves, who are clinging to a playoff spot at present, but are by no means locked into it. Um, There are teams kind of nipping at their heels at this point. The Vancouver Canucks, who I don't think are that good. The Dallas Stars, who might be coming on pretty strong. Um, It's enough that it's not guaranteed. If he misses the playoffs, I don't think he wins the heart. Mm -hmm. So that's something that kind of overhangs us. Also, his production is his big asset and you kind of need to sweep the field i think at this point if you're mcdavid like he the way that he wins this award is by finishing 10 15 points ahead of everyone else and then that clears it and everyone says no it's too big that's it Mm -hmm. but 
if he's just falling back towards the pack, people start thinking, gee, his defense isn't the greatest. Although it has been better this year. Yes, it has. Um, and supposedly under Jake Woodcroft, it's better still. I've seen some eye test stuff from uh, Justin Bourne already saying that they're stopping on pucks more. Mm-hmm. Recital is infamously pretty poor at defense, which is why stat people don't tend to consider him for this award, even though other people sometimes do and have because mm-hmm. he won. <laughs> um, but with Edmonton, it's it's like, I think there's a reluctance to keep giving it to McDavid when the team goes nowhere every time. Right. Um, and that's getting in his way a little bit. Uh, yeah. Now, granted, it's not like the Toronto Maple Leafs have gone anywhere that special yet either. Right. <laughs> the, the Leafs are just good enough in the regular season to, and to, to get their people in contention for awards before, you know, fucking things up when it matters. <laughs> yeah. Although, the thing is, is that Edmonton's big weakness right now is the same as the Leafs has been for the last two months, which is goaltending. Goaltending, yeah. You know, so... If the Leafs keep getting 876 save percentages that they've had since the start of January, then all bets are off. And certainly if the Leafs crater out of the playoffs, Austin Matthews ain't winning shit. Yep. So, yeah, uh, kind of a clouding issue there. As a player, McDavid, I, this is well-trod territory at this point, but he's like the most dangerous rush player I've ever seen. <laughs> Pavel Bure-esque, where it's just he's so fast and he's capable of operating at such a high speed. It doesn't really matter who you put in front of him. Once he gets a few steps on you, he's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And that tells in terms of his ability to create very highly dangerous chances on a consistent basis against pretty much everybody, despite sometimes minimal help. You know, sometimes they'll put Dracetto with him, but sometimes McDavid is asked to carry lesser wingers, like Zach Hyman and Guy, for Mm -hmm. example. Um and still, McDavid continues to bring it. Whereas it has to be said, Matthews gets Mitch Marner pretty much every night, except the few times that earlier this year where he got William Nylander. Right. Yeah, Matthews' quality of teammate is very high relative to McDavid's, I would say. Um, I mean, McDavid's most common line mates are like Hyman, Pugliarvi, then he, he, get, he does get mints with Dreisaitl, which is big, and then Yamamoto. And then after, after that, it's just like a real hodgepodge. Yeah. And, you know, the, the Oilers are still struggling with the fact that their bottom six gets killed pretty much every time right. that they step out on the ice. And so this group needs to drive offense heavily. And Fun- yeah. Fundamentally, the Oilers' problem, it's like, it's like sleeping with a blanket that's too short. Mm. No matter what happens, one part of you is uncovered. There's just not enough surface area, right? It, it's... That's, there's just not enough good players, no matter what you're sacrificing something. Exactly. You can either have McDavid trying to carry a couple of scrubs, or you can have a third line that is the caliber of a fourth line, and the fourth line that's the caliber of the AHL. You don't have a lot of great answers here. Mm-hmm. And that puts the Oilers in a weird sweet spot in terms of their players winning awards. Um... Jeff Ayad has made this complaint repeatedly, and I think he has a point on this one, where he said, the ideal position to be to win the heart is not to be such a dominant team where it's not clear who the best players are, because there are so many, but still to be good enough to make the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. Like, we're not talking about anyone from, say, Tampa for this award. We briefly considered Huberto for this award, and we kind of considered and then dismissed Miko Rantanen. Well, all of those are very successful teams right now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like no one from Carolina either. Yeah, exactly. And you know, in Carolina's case, I have a genuine problem assessing who the best player on that team is. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot of very good players. Yeah, and, and so that that absolutely is true. You know, it stands out. And even if you just balance ice time more, that does mean that the points for the guys at the top of the group will tend to go down. Um, worth noting, though, McDavid's production 5v5 is kind of ordinary this year. Like, mm-hmm. as of yesterday, his point rate was 71st among skaters with at least 100 minutes. Whereas Gaudreau was second, Huberdeau is third, Marner is seventh, Michael Bunting is 13th, and Matthews is 18th. You know, for a guy whose calling card is going to be look at the giant numbers I put up, that's not that great. Um, I think McDavid has the ability to clear the field with raw production, and he hasn't done it yet. And if he doesn't do it, that leaves the door open, for sure. Um, is he better than Austin Matthews? I hmm. think this year there's a case that Matthews has been better. Yeah, um... I mean, so, I mean, this is a pod for these fans. We, we, know, we know what Matthews <laughs> is about, but in case you've forgotten, um, he's the best goal scorer in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And in a goal scoring competition, that carries you a long, long way. Yeah, you would certainly like to have that. Um, his defense has gotten up to a quite decent level. Um, there's some debate as to whether it's actually gotten him to fringe Selkie candidacy. Or whether it's just okay combined with great offense, as some models seem to think. Um, He plays against uh, other top lines on a regular basis. Plays very well. Outscores his competition. Um, The team has survived its recent save percentage dip as well as it has because his line has been on fire. Yeah. Um, Driven by Mitch Marner especially, but Matthews is the best player on the line. Um, And, you know, right now he is again... Uh, leading the Rocket Richard race. I think, you know, I talked about McDavid probably needs to win the Art Ross to win the Hart. Matthews probably needs to win the Rocket. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Matthews can certainly do that is, and is on pace to do so. And if his line really dominates, especially on a Leafs team that has been very up and down outside of his line, uh, I think that makes a very strong argument. Um it's kind of incredible to me that Matthews has gotten a save percentage of like, you know, below 900. So this is like Tosca level goaltending mm-hmm. when he's on the ice and still has a goals four percentage at five on five of around 57%. Yeah. Like he is destroying it. <laughs> we, we, we talked last week about how teams, there's a certain level of bad goaltending that you can't really outrun. Mm-hmm. And that's usually true. Matthews is actually outrunning it right now. Yeah, it's a bit like you know Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and still running until he looks down. Mm-hmm. Like you wonder at some point if the offense starts drying up, Matthews's five v five goal differential will go down, and it's already I think the worst of the of the players that we've talked about. Like his plus minus is probably the lowest, I would guess. It is. It's about plus ten. Yeah. And so yeah, like he's. That number doesn't look as impressive, but watching this team, like, their goaltending has been unplayable recently. I don't know what else to say, and I don't want to pretend it's the only problem, but it's such a massive overhanging one. Like, you can't win consistently with goaltending well below 900. You just can't. And so, assuming that rebounds, 
I think it says a lot that Matthews has guided the team through that period. Um, if it doesn't rebound, you know, the Leafs might still miss the playoffs, but I think he has a real case in terms of his development into a really complete, dangerous player. Um, he's as good at protecting the puck as anyone I've ever seen. He has a terrific shot. He is, I think, playing better and better defensively. I do really believe that as for my my own personal eye test. And so, yeah, I, I would give it to him this year on the basis that he is driving results in a major way for a team that really needs him. Without Matthews, this team is in kind of deep trouble. <laughs> uh, the way things have gone lately. Like, I genuinely think that our dependence on him has been really illuminated in recent weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I I think, you, you know, notwithstanding, McDavid is capable of offense that blows everything else away. McDavid is still the best player in the world. I think, you know, next year, the shortest odds to win the heart should be him. But this year, he slowed just enough, and Matthews has risen just enough that I think Matthews can be a narrow favorite for it, um, even if both teams make the playoffs. And if the Oilers miss and the Leafs make it, then Matthews, I think, has a very strong chance. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, it's, it's fun that we at least have a player in that conversation. It, it really is. Um, you know, as you said, it's been, it's new for the Leafs to basically have this. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's really cool to, to do so. Yeah. So, you, you know, <laughs> as much as there's a ton of stress and worry about the team right now, and again, I totally get why, uh, I don't want to miss that we have as great an offensive performance going right now as we've seen in the Leafs uniform in a very long time. So, Yeah. Uh, we wanted to talk about a couple of articles this week. Yes. And, um, uh, yeah, they're from, they're from outlets we like. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the first is from, uh, Defector, which is a former Deadspin writers and staff banding together and creating a new site. Um, and it was a relatively milk toast piece last week about essentially the fact that like, this was in the aftermath of the least 10-7 game against the Red Wings where... The title was like the Leafs score 10 goals and have problems. And the crux of it is that the Leafs goaltending has been really terrible, right? Nothing mm-hmm. crazy there. Um, the thing that I didn't like about it is it made some comments about the Leafs that I think are based essentially on outdated information. And I tweeted about this. But, for example, it mentions that Frederick Anderson has thrived as he's gotten out of Toronto. And that may suggest that the Leafs' back-end woes are, um, you know, that the Leafs' defensive issues are less goaltending and more just maybe the team's defense is really bad in a way that makes the goaltending look awful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe this is possible. We've talked at length before about how uh, the Leafs probably give up a few more rush, rush chances than the average team by the nature of how they play. They probably give up a few more chances where we're kind of quite out of position. I don't think we're great at defending our zone. But the reason this is slightly frustrating is because if you look at, you know, the first level stats of shots against, expected goals against, the Leafs don't look bad at all. They look average. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you're going to make the claim that the Leafs, that this bad goaltending might just be caused by bad defense, I think you have to actually make a case for that. Like the default, like the burden of proof is for you to say, I know the numbers are okay 
but here's why I think it's actually worse than that. It gets weirder if you look at the goaltending track record of Anderson and Campbell in Toronto. Because mm-hmm. Campbell was very, very good for about a calendar year. And then, so either you're just saying, okay, he was unsustainably wonderfully good through that period, okay, and now it's bad. But I don't think the most natural interpretation is the defense was bad through that whole stretch and he was just outstanding. And now it's gone entirely the other way and it's exposed how bad the defense really is. Um, Similarly, Anderson had a couple of good years in Toronto where he was quite a good goaltender. He struggled towards the end of his tenure. Again, I think in a way that was pretty clearly beyond just bad defense. I'm not (laughs) saying the Leafs don't have problems, that they don't miss people clearing the net. Uh, It's been much remarked on lately that there are a lot of deflection goals, which are obviously very tough to stop. But still, the level of goaltending they've gotten lately is not viable. It's not at a level that's consistent with the NHL, and I don't think any team could survive it for an extended period. I just don't. So, yeah, I think that, you know, there's a consensus around the Leafs is that they're playoff chokers. They're good offensively, but they can't be counted on. They blow leads, and they're generally a shaky skyscraper, so to speak, with great heights and an unsecure foundation. Yeah. I think this is just relying on that narrative. Yeah, pretty much, right? Uh, And I I think it it speaks to some extent about how hockey pieces from outlets that don't primarily cover hockey still probably lean on those tropes a bit too much. Yeah, and it's too bad. You know, we, we like Deadspin, we like Defector. They have a really funny, punchy writing style in terms of you know, my own habit of trying to make jokes and articles on the internet and stuff. I'm definitely influenced by people who write for Defector and wrote at Deadspin, you know, Drew Maggery and um, Echo. So, yeah, like, I I do really admire the publication, but it's just like the hockey coverage is kind of tropey. And that's more fun in terms of people laughing at it. And I'm sure it's a little, it's more riveting than us talking about XG and stuff like that. But it's like, if you want to go any deeper than just this is what it looks like when you're scoreboard watching from afar. And I think Deadspin has done a good job of that with other sports. Mm -hmm. Then I think you at least need to make the case of here's why it looked like the Leafs had solved their defensive problems, but hadn't really. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's part of it. Um, And then there's Dom. I feel Mm -hmm. bad because we we noticed this article uh, with Dom and, you know, I still think it has good elements in it. It's just the framing of it I took a bit of an issue with. But then he got into this argument with Alan Walsh, and Walsh was a huge dickhead. And I was thinking, I don't want to give Dom a hard time when he's dealing with this nonsense. So I want to emphasize, we love Dom. He's great. Mm -hmm. But it described, said, Mitch Marder is not underpaid. And... I think you have to consider what you mean by that. And he, he acknowledged, you know... There's more than one way you can be under or overpaid, right? There's right. compared to league average, which is what he does, and compared to the situation where the contract was signed. And I think that's kind of the problem here. Yeah, so, I mean, to back up, like, Dom will produce these player cards that'll have, like, the market value of players. And what he means by the market value of players is essentially based on how teams bid for wins in the unrestricted free agency market 
or it might just be in the free agency market in general, but it, it's almost always the unrestricted free agency market because of how few RFAs are, 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 are signed relative to UFAs. But based on how teams you know, bid for players in the unrestricted free agency market, a player worth this many wins is worth this many dollars. And that is a useful way to assess the value of a contract because in a way it's like, what would the, be the cost of replacing this contract? You know, if this player disappeared and we had to replace this contract uh, and, and like there was a, like, we needed to replace this production, how much would it cost us per year? Exactly. Like if Mitch Marner, let's say, has had enough, I don't want to hear from these whiny, ungrateful fans anymore. I am retiring. Peace out. Bye. Um, you can't just go to the Mitch Marner store and produce another Mitch Marner. You would have an exceptionally difficult time obtaining a player comparable to him at any price. Um, those players don't even tend to go UFA on any kind of regular basis. So by that standard, you can say, absolutely, you should be grateful to have him because you can't fill in someone like him for like cost. Um, the trick is the Leafs weren't just coming to the market blind at the time they signed this deal. He was a restricted free agent and RFAs as a group are, are underpaid mm-hmm. because it's easier to keep them because of the contract restrictions on them. And so, even if by that standard you say, well, you'd have a hell of a time replacing Mitch Marner, there are a lot of players comparable to him who would also be very hard to replace who make a lot less money. Matthew Kachuk, Miko Rantanen, uh, Sebastian Ajo, uh, Jonathan Huberdeau, if you want to go a little bit further back. And so I don't see how you get around that interpretation. And I think, you know, Dom said as much. He's not blind to this issue. But... Yeah, I just as people who have said that Mitch Marner is unfortunately kind of overpaid, that's what we mean. We don't mean that you could just go out and replace him or that he's not good. He's very mm-hmm. good. It's just the situation that he was in shouldn't have led to him costing $11 million a year. And I don't see a way around that. Pretty much. And like from the perspective of a uh, an agent, you can justifiably use this argument right you can say like if you're darren ferris you could say i don't care what the comparables are your options aren't sign mitch marner or sign braden point to the contract tampa bay sign braden point to it's sign mitch marner or replace mitch marner and if you want to replace mitch marner it'll cost you more than i'm asking you yeah absolutely and in the circumstances they were in, you know, they were saying, you have John Tavares, you have this core, you are trying to win right now. You can't afford to be overly patient with Mitch Marner. You had a rough season with the William Nylander contract negotiation where he missed a lot of time, and now you're kind of up against it. And I think Darren Ferris assessed the situation and said, I can get my client overpaid here, not to mention he was coming off a hugely productive year. Mm-hmm. Um and that's legitimate negotiating. He succeeded in getting what, he, what his client wanted. But I think that at the same time, you have to recognize most teams found their way out of that trap. And that might have been easier for them based on team circumstances, but that is what happened. Um, again, there just aren't that many deals that are like Mitch Martyrs that come from the same situation. Um, yeah, so... That's kind of all I had to cover in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, so that, I think like, it's, it's an article that makes sense, but mm. 
I think it uses kind of a sleight of hand in how we talk about overpaying because often when we say overpaid we mean a player is like got more than they quote-unquote should have gotten relative to like the alternatives available to the team right? right or like a team made a decision where the alternatives were were better and you can argue and I think Katya has argued this that like Marner isn't overpaid because the Leafs actually didn't have an alternative right it was pay Marner or or that's it. Yeah. I mean, you could have dared him to take an offer sheet from the Columbus Blue Jackets. Yeah. And I think, for the record, part of the uh, frustration around the contract is that people suspected Marner would never have actually done that. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, the option was risk letting him go and saying, you know, go sign an offer sheet. And if you don't sign by this date, I'm just going to trade you anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um Definitely a difficult circumstance, but I think you have to say that Marner won that negotiation. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so I think that's mostly what we wanted to, to chat about. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? Uh, not really, except I'll say that the good twins of Evolving Wild are doing a hockey Twitter bracket, mm. which is very fun. Uh, I'm biased because a couple of mine are in there, but anyway, it's just a good way to review some of the funny things that have happened online. Uh, I complain about Twitter because it can be a cesspit, but it is also a place that can be very funny. So look them up and have a vote if you want to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have, are, are you the most uh, appearing person in there? You might be. I think you it's have... Damien Cox. Oh, oh. well, <laughs> okay. That's for different reasons though. Yeah. <laughs> He's not doing it on purpose. But still. Yeah, exactly. No, that's, that, that's cool. You should, you should all vote for Fuhlman. His, his very funny um, Mark Donk and Buzz Flibbit tweets as well as the, I'm guessing it's the other one that's there is the being sad in a group. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, Indulge my 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> yeah, you should do that. <laughs> Um, all right, so thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.